Hi, welcome to the Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning and Data Science Weekly Podcast. My name is Kwan Hong, or you can call me KH. In this show, I'll be talking to AI, ML and data science practitioners around the region. In each episode, I will dive into relevant and interesting AI, ML topics, where you get to know more about topics ranging from AI, ML adoption, best practices, and tips and tricks to be a better AI, ML data science practitioner. Hi, welcome to another episode of AI ML Data Talk Weekly Podcast. In today's episode, I'm happy to have Chan Kimping, who is currently the director and the co-founder of Kasatria Technologies and Ram Berhad as a guest of the show. Hi, Kin. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for the very warm welcome, Dr. P. Uh, so, uh, my name is Kin, and I'm one of the partners of Kasatria. So, um, our team is basically a regional partner for Google, uh, specializing in marketing and revenue optimization using data and artificial intelligence. So basically, um, I was actually trained as a software engineer, uh, and I guess I'm quite lucky because as a programmer, it forces us to structure our thoughts and think logically. And this fundamentally makes it easier for us to break big problems into smaller manageable tasks to address. And um, in terms of education, uh, as a child, I would say that my education was quite normal. I went to kindergarten, I went to primary school, right? of course I went to high school. But um, that being said, uh, throughout my formative years, honestly, I didn't pay that much attention to study because I didn't like a lot of what I was learning. Okay? So what do I mean by this? I'm sure in school, right, um, all of you have subjects that you like and subjects that you didn't like. Right. So personally for me, uh, back in school, I enjoyed subjects like English, science, math, and world history. But I was not actually motivated to pick up other subjects because um, when I was forced to learn something that I had no interest in or felt that it was not very useful to me, uh, usually I think um, it would feel very challenging to basically pick up the book and start reading. Right. But now that I look back over the years, right, I realized that this was a very important discovery for me that I'm glad I found out early. It is because as an adult, it is very important to do something that you enjoy. Because when you love what you do, you will naturally put in the time to get better at it. And when you get better at it, you're recognized for your efforts and your ability to make a difference. Right? So um, this is the compass that has guided me I guess almost 25 years right, uh, as a working professional. So in terms of the kind of projects that we do, right, what do we mean by uh, helping companies market and sell more effectively? If I break up the tasks, um, fundamentally, it is broken into a few phases. Right? So we have projects that are related to descriptive strategies predictive strategies, and prescriptive strategies. What do we mean? Eh? Right. So the first step is always to be able to measure and document what has been done. These are the fundamentals of any data science initiative. Right? So if I can tell you what happened in the past, and I can tell you in what magnitudes it happened, we can pretty much describe historical phenomena. Okay? But in order to make it useful, right? someone needs to be able to interpret all of the data points to evaluate what we call risks and opportunities so that you can then pair this with the business outcome. This is where we move from describing what has happened in the past towards predicting what will happen next, right? And if you want to put it into practical terms, right? If I told you, for example, that somebody would be losing money soon, that is what we call a prediction. But the main question here is this. If you wanted to turn a negative outcome into a positive outcome, you then need to prescribe strategic options that can be considered in order to address those issues. right? And this is where, at the end of the day, this cycle right, of describing, predicting, and then prescribing relevant options to drive consideration is going to be a very, very important process that to be fair, many of us take for granted in our day-to-day -day life, right? So specifically, um, for example, uh, in the past, we had clients, right, who were unable to literally measure how well 
their lead generation campaigns were influencing their sales. Because of that gap, a lot of the strategies were made based on what we call guesses. But if we can now describe the user's path to purchase effectively, we can then move towards evaluating, okay, based on historical observations, can we identify the campaigns with the highest likelihood of uh, consideration and also able to drive the outcome in the cheapest possible manner? So you are saying that uh, with the historical data, you are actually able to use the data to understand user behavior? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. So now we are talking about that. Um, actually, what happens is we, we got a million dollar grant from the government, right? So in fact, we found patterns in the area. Um, and the pattern that we actually found was related to what we call um, customer profiling. And in order to execute that particular strategy, right, um, we observe customer behavior or what we call user behavior and then interpret it to evaluate what they are likely to do next. In principle, actually, while well, it might sound very complex, uh, our parents used to call this body language. For example, right, you might have followed your parents into a shop. Sometimes after looking at a TV that your dad wanted to buy, right, the salesperson will, let's say, put a, a fee. But when your parents were unhappy with the price, right, you are actually able to observe them based on what they are doing, even though they did not say anything, right? So the moment your father or your mother starts putting their hands and crossing it across their chest, you notice that this is actually a negative response rate. If you notice that this person starts frowning and then starts shaking his head, although he has not said anything, right? You kind of know that your parent is basically not agreeable with the price that the salesperson has quoted, right? So you see, a lot of these things, right, are... When, when you study science formally, you will realize that uh, one of the ways of capturing data is through something, they will always describe it as primary research. And primary research is uh, comprised of two things, surveys and observation. Survey means I will ask you, uh, are you happy with the price? Okay. But observation right, means that although he didn't say he was happy with the price, right, based on how he is responding, right, I can actually guess his answer already, you see. This is why, if you turn it into, um, into a simple perspective, right? If, for example, you were in a shopping market, if you notice that the girl was next to the dairy section, right? Her likelihood of considering things like cheese, cream, or milk is a lot higher than if she was standing next to the home improvement section, right? So as a human, right? Most people will say, that's very easy, but I don't need to be a genius to come to that conclusion. I absolutely agree, <laughs> right? This is why... When people talk about things like AI and machine learning, right, they make it sound very complicated. But what AI ultimately is supposed to do right, is to identify steps that as a human, we ourselves would take and articulate it such that a machine will repeat the steps and come to a similar conclusion. Right? This is a very layman explanation of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because fundamentally, if the machine generated a decision, right, that you yourself as a human did not agree with, right, you will get upset. But when the machine continuously generates a decision that you found to be favorable, right, then you will call it intelligent, right? If the thing continued to make mistakes, you will call this artificial mistake rather than artificial intelligence, right? So this is why at the end of the day, when we do stuff, right, in my opinion, complex topics we need to simplify back into its basic constituent steps so that we can not only explain it to someone, but rather because it is so simplified, the other person listening in right, can actually evaluate for himself. Do I agree with what this person is doing? I see. And because of these steps, because I agree, right? Now we are actually allowing people to participate in discussion. And this is very, very important because as professionals, right? Um, a lot of people like to use jargon, right? But it is our duty to ensure that we make it easy for people to understand. We make it easy for people to participate. Then actually we build what we call consensus. Because fundamentally, um, software engineering, there's an art and a science, right? But ultimately, we are here to basically help someone replicate processes based on their desired aspirations. 
And whenever we are able to basically achieve these outcomes uh, in a meaningful way, together with the client, we are then able to accelerate this process significantly across the border. And this is very, very important for us. Okay. Just now you were using the analogy of body language in it. So how do you translate that, translate that into data? For example, what kind of data point that you... Because in body language, we can actually see from visual, then we can actually understand well, what is the, what's the body language representing. So how does it translate into a, 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 in data, data science? Where what kind of data point that can, what kind of analogy that you, what kind of data, yeah. So since, since you use that body language uh, uh, analogy, so I'm, I'm quite curious, how, how do you use data as a, as a, as a, as a predictor? Okay, got it. Uh, so it's a very, very good question. So let me just explain. When people do machine learning, right, uh, you usually encounter two terms. Uh. There's something called supervised learning and something called unsupervised learning, right? So in broad strokes, right, uh, unsupervised learning is a situation where you're using data that is unlabeled and you're not really sure what you're processing, right? Whereas supervised learning is stuff that has already been labeled and it is paired to something called a data model reflective of a decision-making criteria. I'll give you a very simple example, right? So if I told you that this person was looking for a car, right? So this represents a vertical. But when we talk about a car, right, I'm sure many of you drive, right? But before you bought your first car, usually you would consider things like price. You would consider things like, for example, is it an auto or manual car? You will consider things like maybe the origin of the brand. Is this a Japanese car, European car, local car, right? So when we can label the data in the same manner that a human makes the decisions, the signals that you're observing, right, become significantly stronger. So now let me just give a very concrete example. So if I was a salesperson, right, and let's just assume my showroom bought a lot of cars, right? If I noticed that the first car you look at, it was, let's say, Proton. I noticed that you started frowning. The second car you saw, right, it was a BMW 3 Series. I noticed that you started nodding, right? And the last car that you saw was actually a Mercedes, and I noticed you started smiling. So based on this, right, if we took the time to basically dive deeper, now let's look at it. If the local car, right, we notice that he started frowning. This is a negative response, right? If I notice he, for example, started nodding at the BMW 3 Series. At the end of the day, if you think about it, okay, a BMW 3 Series, the budget is actually high. It's actually a luxury car, right? Number two, this thing is actually a German car, right? And when person started smiling at the Mercedes, right? you realize that, hey, I have two positive responses for German cars. Both of them are luxury cars. So now, based on this observation, right, for the fourth vehicle, what do you think you should show? See, as a human, right, we can actually interpret this signal. In fact, most salespeople, right, they actually catch these things very quickly. Once. So what we're trying to say here is this. Unconsciously, throughout our day-to-day -day life, right, we actually apply a lot of machine learning processes. Right? It's just that you, we are not everyone is trained as a programmer. See? They didn't break it down into the individual steps. So think about it very simply. Like. If uh, like I have children, uh, in the past, I tried to enroll them to all kinds of classes. Uh, right? So there was one time I tried to enroll my son to a Mandarin class. The guy was, he started frowning. I tried to enroll him to a Japanese class. He started to smile. Right? So after a while, the main question here is this. If you yourself can generate these kind of observations, right, you can actually interpret this data to evaluate what types of situations will generate a favorable response. This is the fundamentals of what we call personalization with the purpose of driving a favorable outcome. In very formal terms in marketing, right, we call this conversion optimization. So if you think about it, we want to be able to predict the things that people have the highest likelihood of being able to afford. So that's what we call a budget prediction. I want to be able to predict things based on the product that he prefers to buy. But in order to identify the product that he prefers to buy, right, I actually need to understand what was the problem this person was facing and how this product can address that issue. For example, I give a very concrete example. We used to work with an airline, right? From the data, I can actually observe and predict their preferred destination. 
I can also predict who was intending to go on a trip. That means I can differentiate between a family unit with children, someone planning to travel alone, or someone traveling as a couple for romance, right? And I can even predict, right, all the way down to the preferred activity at the destination. I can differentiate between people who want to go shopping, people who want to go to a theme park, or people who want to go, for example, diving. So when we use all of these predictions based on what we call consumer behaving criteria, and we intentionally take the time to show them what they prefer, our hypothesis was this would definitely drive consideration positively and ultimately improve revenue potential. So from that hypothesis, many people like to generate what we call predictions, but very few people actually take the time to validate <laughs> that their prediction actually is able to contribute to the outcome, right? Yep. So in order to basically do this, you will actually go through a very formal process of running what we call an experiment. Meaning that if in the past, right, you just showed things to people randomly. But now, I purposely show you destinations that you prefer. When you start doing this, right, you can then observe a significant uplift in terms of sales and also likelihood to buy, right? In fact, these are published case studies, right? Um, there's a, there's a metric called return on ad spend, right? And it's calculated based on revenue, right? Uh, divided by the total number of uh, uh, funds spent on ads. So a return on ad spend of 100% means you spend $1, you earn $1. So anything less than 100% means you lose money, right? So in this context, I cannot tell you what is the exact return on ad spend for the client. But after taking advantage of predictions, right? Their return on ad spend improved by 700%. Not 5%, not 10%, 700%, right? The simplest analogy here would be this. Huh? If your friend, right, told you that this person was planning to buy a car soon, okay? But as the salesperson on behalf of the bank, right, if I started selling to you a credit card, what do you think would be the response of that person? Most of the time, if you pitch something that people don't like, right, everyone treats it as spam. But if you already got insights, and you chose to act on those insights to share with him, for example, the car loan package at a lower interest rate, your likelihood of consideration will increase significantly, right? So that is the narrative that we want to bring on the table. Because most people who do sales, right, they have applied these methodologies consciously for a really long time. But even in a company, you will notice that they are good salespeople and they are not so good salespeople, right? So what we want to replicate is the ideal best practice from your top salespeople. So right. you're saying that in a normal sales marketing world, a good sales people who those are people that have a personalized, they give a personalized service to the client. So you're trying to replicate these personalized services from an actual salesperson to the to the digital world where you can actually have a personalized experience in the digital marketing world. Is it? Is it, yes. Is it? yes. 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 You're absolutely spot on. Right? Because fundamentally, you see, if you were the founder or the top salesperson of the organization, right? you would realize that, hey, my company, right, I got, let's say, 10,000 products. If I took the time to show each individual brochure, right, to the customer, most of the time, the customer will switch off because he doesn't have time, right? But good salespeople, out of the 10,000 brochures, right, he will intentionally think first, okay, this customer is actually a factory, right? I heard that he was planning to expand and get new machinery. So he will eventually bring brochures, right? That will allow you to, number one, finance machinery, finance the acquisition of more land to increase the size of his factory and also expand his business. So that is what we call a judgment call, right? And that is actually a prediction, isn't it? So many people already do it. Uh, our job is to make sure that what works well physically for your business as you rightly pointed out, it needs to be replicated digitally as well because there's a big disconnect. Okay. So improving user experience is definitely one of the AI and machine learning that's actually bring on to the digital marketing world. How about uh, uh, understanding the, um, the customer better or also understanding some, some, something what we call a latent behavior in it or late, intent behavior. That means before the before the user actually uh, decide to do something, you already understand their intent or understand their uh, things that they wanted to buy before they actually buying it. Is it something that's uh, that's that's uh, I think that's that's where the digital marketing is moving towards it most of the time now. Understand. So, uh, so the, your your observation is spot on, right? And in order to basically act on it, we need to introduce the theory of what we call 
customer journeys, right? And basically break it down into phases. I, I just give a very simple example. Like, if I was someone who had, for example, a screen protector for an iPhone, right? Should I pitch it to you before you buy the iPhone or after you buy the iPhone? Right? Uh, so this is a very classic example, right? So, so logically, you think about it. If I pitch to you to get the casing, the screen protector, or even things like the Bluetooth headset before you have bought the phone, right? The odds of you buying is going to be very low. I simplify the example, right? If I sell to you a car wash package when you don't have a car, right? Does it make sense? So this is why we need to map what we call the customer journey towards the phases of life throughout your product life cycle. Because at the end of the day, uh, many acad uh, academics, right, they've actually described it very well in their research papers. But the business process, right, right now, when it is executed by machines, does not take into account those models. Actually, the human does this, right? Like, like a merchandise. You think about it, if you enter a retail environment, right, you would notice, for example, the nail clipper and things like, for example, nail polish, right? They are intentionally arranged together. Why? Because the moment you think that someone is willing to take care of their nails, right? Likelihood of considering things like nail polish is actually higher. Then if you're willing to consider nail polish, how about the file for your nail, right? How about the different brushes to basically go and paint your nail? See, that is what we call a look-alike model, right? It's like saying that if you were already going to Japan, right? Can I interest you in a course to pick up Japanese language? Can I interest you, for example, in cheap hotels that would be available in Japan during your stay? Can I interest you to, for example, Malaysians who happen to live in Japan who are willing to be, for example, your guide or your usher? See, that is what we call a look-alike model. See? And this is what most marketers actually traditionally have done in their business, especially when preparing things like their brochures, right? It's just that most of the time, what a human would do, the machine right now has not been instructed to do. And this is the disconnect, you see? Because what you will notice is that for many people, engineers will only execute what they're told to do. And, and, and let's just think about it as a brief, right? Because I've been an employee before. When your boss tells you, I want you to put our list of services on the web, on a web page. Uh, yes, boss, I'll do that. I want you to allow people to submit an inquiry when they're interested in our service. Yes, boss, I'll do that. I want you to allow people to pay for their service online. Sure, no problem. That's exactly what gets done. Uh. But when you arrive on the site, right? First of all, you have to go through every service to find out whether or not it's useful for you, right? But as a human, right? Most of the time, the moment you walk in the door, right? The boss would have made a judgment call. Ah, uh, so where you're from? Or oh, I'm actually uh, owner of a factory. Ah, these are the services that we can actually offer to you to improve your competitiveness. That's what we call personalization, right? The question here is this. If the boss understood this and applied this in his day-to-day -day for the last 20, 30 years, right? Why did the website not do it? In fact, the website, right? Despite the fellow saying that in the inquiry form, I, my name is Mr. Lim. I'm an owner of a factory. I'm interested in blah, blah, blah. The website did not change the experience, right? <laughs> because you see, the engineer was not briefed to change the experience. This is why this is a disconnect in the brief. It's not the engineer's fault. If the engineer was told, not only should I show you the service, right? I want you to predict the customer's preferred, from, uh, preferred solution based on their challenge, right? And I want you to map the most suitable solution that can drive the outcome at the lowest possible cost in the shortest amount of time. That is the actual brief that the boss was again applying unconsciously, right? So if this is not articulated to the engineering team, this will continue to happen, you see. This is why if we are practitioners, right, we need to change again. The expectation must rise. You cannot complain to the engineer that how come the website didn't do this when you did not ask them to do it, you see? So this is why it's important for us to basically drive the awareness. Huh? Because complaining is something that I think Malaysians are very good at, right? <laughs> but, but the thing that we need to keep in mind here is this. Complaining means that someone acknowledges that there 
there is room for improvement, right? Thinking about it positively. Lah. Now the question here is, if you realize there is room for improvement, what are we doing together to be part of the change that we want to see, right? So if people start participating, right, and sharing the outcomes that they prefer to experience, not only as a consumer, but also as a business owner, right? Then this thing will start to change, I would say, progressively together with the expectations of the people that we are serving. Hopefully that makes sense. Yep. So, yeah, so I can see that uh, a lot of time, uh, digital marketing, I mean, marketing has been around for quite some time. Uh, and it actually depends on a lot of experience that build out across the years for, for people to implement correctly. But then when you come to digital marketing, you have a lot of data points that you can actually build on the data to, to actually make your digital marketing more efficient. I think that, that, that is the analogy that part, or you can see the evolution from traditional marketing to digital marketing. So uh, you're, you're spot on. Um, so maybe I'll just share a very simple experience. Huh? Like, um, many people feel that digital marketing and traditional marketing is actually separate. Actually, it's referring to the same thing. It is a journey, right? So I'll give a very simple example. Huh? So there was one time a bank right, came to us. He said, I want to be able to drive higher levels of consideration for my renewal. And I want to be able to upsell what we call more riders. So I give a very concrete example. So let's say if this one was a car insurance company, right? They have riders related to things like windscreen coverage, flood coverage, and so on, right? So let's just focus on one. If I wanted to upsell flood coverage, right? What is the reason people buy flood coverage? People buy flood coverage because they are at risk of flood. So that is the actual question, right? So now, how the hell do I know whether or not this person is at risk of flood? Okay, so now think about it logically. Yeah? If this person is already an existing car insurance policy holder, you know his address, you know his car, right? Then what happens here is this. Based on his address, you actually know where he lives, right? Now the next question you need to ask is this. Historically, can we obtain incident of flood by location? So now, if I can tell you that, uh, boss, in the last 10 years, right, your location experiences likelihood of flood, which is 80 times higher than other locations. I just shared with you fact. Huh? Would you consider getting protection if let's say you are at risk? So in the past, right, most people don't think about it when you don't state the facts for their consideration. Why would I buy flood insurance when it didn't cross my mind that my location had flood? But if I gave to you facts, right, our hypothesis is that most people are actually willing to consider being protected, especially if they are at risk. If they feel they are not at risk, most people will of course decline, right? Because they feel that it's not relevant to them. So when we join these two dots together, we have now observed not only an opportunity, but the opportunity came from a risk that was present, but was not noticed by the marketer. See? Because you see, we, we are all consumers, right? If I was already looking for it, you are not marketing for me. If I did not know about it, and if I knew about it, but I was not convinced, right? And if I'm already convinced, but I'm actually shopping to get the best deal. A marketer is supposed to intervene at all of those micro moments to drive consideration, right? Our job is to go out of the way to find people whom we can help and ultimately influence their I would say decision positively. So all this rely on data, I see. So a human can describe the process. The machine is going to repeat it, right? And ideally the machine should automatically decide, wow, I have so many different strategies to drive consideration. Which strategy can do it cheaper, better, faster, right? I think in Chinese they always say ping jang lang lang, right? It's nice to say, right? But to turn it into an actual strategy, right? It requires a plan, you see from the practitioners who are basically orchestrating the outcome. Hopefully that makes sense. Yep. So, so nowadays, most of the solution that uh, people are looking at is actually more towards prescriptive, is it? Or we say something what we call NBA and next best action. So do, yep. do, do, I mean, do, you, do your company provide all these uh, prescriptive solutions? Yes. So actually what you're expressing is spot on. In fact, this is the personal observation that we've uh, seen. Uh, in the past, right, many people like to build what we call data warehouses. This means they like to store stuff that can describe what happened in the past. That's great, right? 
Then, in the last five to ten years, many people uh, start to generate a lot of predictions more actively, right? But what we've observed today is many people generate the hypothesis, but very few people try to operationalize it to drive the outcome. So this is why the next back action, right, is basically a transformative step. What does transformation mean? It just means that the company hasn't done it yet. I know it sounds like a very big word, right? But to be fair, if you have not done it yet, the, the biggest obstacle is actually fear. They are worried that if I do it, what if the prediction is wrong, right? But in order to basically participate in data science effectively, right, we need to satisfy three criteria. We all need to be curious, right? We need to be willing to learn from mistakes, right? But last but not least, we cannot feel intimidated when people probe and ask us to justify how we came to our conclusion, right? Because anyone who has done a PhD or a master's, right, you will realize that you always get challenged, right? And academia is all about a process that you've defined based on a series of assumptions that ideally, when someone else tries to repeat those steps, right, they come to the same conclusion, you see? Mm -hmm. That is the burden of scrutiny in academia. But actually, in the commercial world, it's the same as well. So we need to be able to move from theory to practice so that we can then basically drive incremental strategic competitive advantage for the teams that we serve. Does that make sense? Yep. So there's now back, back to the question about uh, how to measure accuracy or how to measure results. That's how you were saying that you do some um, research or you do some... Uh, I think what you were trying to say is you do some A-B testing and you, you, do, uh, you, you, you implement certain things without and read, read your recommendation and you compare the result and then you, you measure the ROI in it. Yes, you're absolutely spot. Okay, so I think this one, uh, a number of clients actually came to us as well. They are traditional data scientists. Right? So the question that they have in their mind is they cannot reconcile two terms. There's something called confidence and something called accuracy. <laughs> okay, so... Confidence, right, is the metric that you generate when you train your model. Okay, let's be very clear. First. Because when you do your machine learning, right, it is typically like, for example, let's say you have 100,000 records. You will split it into one set for training and another set for validation, right? But the number that you generate, right, is what we call uh, a can data set. That's why all you have is a number representative of confidence, likelihood of it being correct based on the data set provided. But accuracy, right, is when you operationalize it in real life. What were the odds of it being correct when put into a live environment, right? So you need to move away from confidence towards predicting and generating what we call the accuracy as a metric, right? And once you do this, accuracy reflects actual business metric because from there, right, you will get your actual revenue. You will actually get your actual conversion rate. And also your job operates. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that makes sense. Yep. So when so whenever of, of course uh, we, we, we know that in machine learning, whenever you deploy a model, it's never accurate. You have to go many, many cycles to actually improve the model. So in digital marketing, how do you go back and improve your model? Okay. So basically, um in, in machine learning, they always have this term called reinforced learning, right? What it actually means is that the outcome of your prediction will fuel your subsequent prediction, right? Uh, I'll give, just give a very simple example. So let's say in the past, I was dating, right? So maybe in the in the past, you're my bro, you're my ringman, right? So since I'm a bit shy, I haven't seen the girl before, I ask you, Dr. Fu, I really like this girl. Right? What should I bring during the date? Then since you're such a nice bro, right? you'd say, from anecdotal observations, you know, I would say that if you don't know anything about the girl, probably bring flowers, right? flowers will be safer, right? So me being the happy, innocent person, I will just listen to you. Yeah, I'll bring flowers. So when I bring flowers, right, the first time I bring flowers, she gave me a slap. And I'll be like, oh, wow. Maybe she had a bad hair day, like, no problem. So second day, right, I still bring flowers. I still got a slap. The third time, do you think I will bring flowers anymore? Okay, so see, that decision to stop bringing flowers, right, was based on the principle of reinforced learning. So now the question here is this. The third time, if I don't want to bring flowers, I will try a different option. Maybe I brought chocolates instead. And when I bring chocolates, right, instead of a slap, I get a hug. So now, you see, this is why we move from unsupervised learning to supervised learning. Slap, I categorize and label as negative outcome. Hug, 
I consider and label as positive outcome. So after a while, if I give things like chocolate, car, condo, I notice it's always positive, right? So if I give things like flowers, garden, you know, I always get negative outcome. After a while, you yourself can decide, right? This girl, uh, if I bring her out to things related to nature, one, a lot of problems. But if I give her things that taste nice, you know, give her good life and blah, 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 likelihood of getting a positive response is higher. So then the main question here is this. Are you happy with that situation? Are you happy with only a person who would be, uh, I would say, be content when you're able to provide for her? Or are you someone who prefers hanging out with someone who also enjoys doing the things that you like to do, right? So you see, many people have different considerations. This is why when we talk about things like AI and machine learning, right, we always need to tune it based on what we call the decision-making criteria of the person who is basically instructing us to execute, see? right? So I, I, I give an example. Nowadays, we're working with people in Europe, right? They're actually saying things like this. Last time I worked with the China man, right, he would say, I want you to predict relevant products, but also give me the highest profit margin. That's exactly what I would quote, right? But the guy in Europe, right, he would say, no, I want you to highlight the most relevant product that drives the lowest carbon footprint. They want very different consideration, right? right? Both also is AI. But you see, because the consumer decision-making criteria change, the model needs to change. The data we ingest needs to change, right? And this is why, personally, from our observation, it is very important to talk about supervised learning. Because supervised learning is exactly how humans decide. Okay? Unsupervised learning is, a, uh, I would say, an area that currently uh, many, many big players are throwing billions of dollars at that problem, right? But the results so far has got a lot of room for improvement, right? Completely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely. I think back to your uh, gift for a girl, you always go for the what they say, the five C's. Yeah? All the credit card, cash, condo, <laughs> cars. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So what's one, one question. So you know that now we are still in the pandemic current situation of COVID-19. So do you see any, the, the impact of COVID-19 on this Digital, mar uh, digital marketing, especially on the development of AI for digital marketing? Is there any impact? Uh, I would say the impact is quite huge, simply because uh, from our observation regionally uh, and together with our principal Google, um, the pandemic has basically introduced what we call um, a situation that required a lot of companies to transform, right? Okay, so if you think about it, why do people transform? Some people transform because if they don't do it, the company will close down. So it's survival, right? Some people transform because they want to basically improve and earn more money, generate operational efficiencies, right? But between nice to have and must do if you die, right? I think uh, we can see where this is heading, right? Many people are actually in a situation where if they don't transform, they will die. This is why it has actually accelerated this process, right? Literally by at least four to five years. Because if you especially now when people have to work away from, uh, away from the office, right? They have to work at home. And many people also now seem to be buying things more and more online because it's dangerous to physically walk to the store now, right? So all of this trigger the need to reprioritize their channels. It's not that in the past they have no website. It's just that if you look at it in terms of revenue contribution, right? Last time, probably 80% was retail, 20% was online. But now it's actually flipping, you see? 80% of his revenue came online and only 20% retail. This causes them to basically realign their objectives to basically influence their revenue channels. Hopefully that makes sense, right? Yep. And uh, a big question that a lot of people are asking now here is this. When I spend online, how am I actually proving that this influences people to walk in store to buy? And when people walk in store to buy, right? How does this influence people actually thinking about it and going online to buy as well? So that is actually the big problem in the industry right now that is currently being addressed together with Google. Right? 
Yeah, so I think that that is one of the com uh, common uh, things that people try to tackle. How do you track people that actually go to the shop, physical shop or brick and mortar shop to actually feel and test the physical product. But instead of buying at the physical shop, they actually go back and buy online because it's much cheaper. So how do you track that? Like you say, the customer journey from people actually going to a physical shop and then testing and feeling the product, but they don't buy there. But actually because of they tested the product at the physical shop, they actually go back and buy online. So how 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 do you how do you track that? No, so that that thing that that's the thing that people are actually doing try to do now. Answer. So um, so it's a good question. So uh, I'll focus on one word that you said. Uh. Track customer journey. Yep. See, tracking the customer journey is the essential part of this strategy, because I need to keep track of what you did in the sequence so that I can then evaluate whether or not that action influenced what we call the final outcome. So in this context, right, for example, you saw something online, right? Then later, you decide to walk into the store. But then after that, you decided to go and buy online and hunt for a better price, right? So traditionally, the observation of this was very challenging, right? Because when you saw the ad, right, how do I know that you saw then when you saw the ad, but then walk into the store, how do I know that you were the same person who saw the ad and walked into the store, right? And after walking into the store, how do I know that you are also the same person who is actually bought online? So the nice thing here is that um, in, in the Google ecosystem, right, uh, Google is actually spending a lot of money to try and join all these dots for you, okay? So in today's world, right, for some of the brands that we're selling, we are introducing processes that, number one, allow us to keep track of whether or not you were exposed to the ad. This is question number one. Number two, as part of the exposure, right, we now want to also be able to introduce processes so that we can capture the person's data with consent, right? So that we can give him a unique identifier that when he enters the store, right, we can actually match these two things together. Okay, um, it's actually easier to show in slides, but since this is a podcast, right? In, in broad strokes, what it means is that number one, when you saw the ad, I kept track of you. Number two, because we introduce processes that trigger what we call um, registration process, right? When you try to enter the store, okay? The registration process, right, was tracked by a Google platform. And the ad was shown to you by a Google platform. We can actually join those two dots behind the scenes for you. you see. So this means now I can determine that you saw the ad. When you enter the store nowadays, you will realize that people have to scan a QR code, right? Like for example, like if you go to a place like Maxis now, right? When you scan the QR code, it will open up a website that will ask you to enter your details and your purpose and it will give you a queue number. Then after that, when your queue number is called, right? Um, you are then serviced. And upon service, the customer service agent will press that the service is complete. They will call queue number number two, right? So in this process, the ad and the queue process, right? We actually join together. Mm. So I actually know that you saw. I actually know that you physically went in store, right? And then later, when you choose to buy online because you applied, for example, a coupon, we can actually join the dot together as well through the coupon or through the fact that the e-commerce tracking process right, was also captured by Google. See, behind the scenes, the ad, the queue platform, and also the e-commerce platform, right? The caveat here, it must be all tracked by Google. When it's done this way, right? Then you actually have end-to-end -end visibility. And this okay. allows us to address that particular situation. I understand the process because uh, we, we know that uh, we have this uh, uh, app ID in there. So they can actually track from devices to website, wherever. But uh, yeah. people, are, I mean, uh, for example, now Apple with the app tracking transparency, and then uh, people are moving towards cookie-less world. How do you see the tracking, you know, the evolution of tracking in the, in the coming future? I'm, I'm sure, I mean, tracking individually, I think there's something that uh, people are trying to avoid because uh, it, it seems like there's a lot of privacy issues. I think uh, I think the two biggest uh, advertising platforms like Facebook or Google, they are moving towards more kind of uh, 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 a more privacy kind of uh, tracking. So do you see there's an evolution there? Okay, so basically uh, the points that you have raised are valid, right? And these are challenges persistent in the ecosystem. Uh, but maybe I just state this for the record. Uh. Um, 
when doing this stuff, right, it becomes very important to get consent. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the area that we are operating in is what we call permission-based marketing, right? And we need to get the, the user's tacit consent in order to basically serve them and improve their quality of life. So maybe I just give a very simple example, right? Um, when people talk about cookie-less environment, right? Actually, the cookie is not going away, <laughs> but they are now introducing uh, a difference in interpreting something called a first-party cookie and a third-party cookie. Okay. So just to uh, explain very quickly, a first-party cookie just means that it was a variable that was issued out by the site that you're listing. A third-party cookie means that it's a variable, right? That was issued by another domain, not necessarily from the domain that you're currently at. Okay. Uh, I guess the simplest example here would be this. In the past, right, maybe if you live in a condo, you notice that they give you an access card, right? Some condos, right, as long as you have the right data in your card, it did not matter whether you bought the card from the condo or you bought it in Jalan Alam. Any card would have allowed you to pass. Okay. So this is the situation between what we call a first-party cookie and third-party cookie. If the card was issued out by your condo, we treat it as first-party cookie. If your card was issued out from Jalan Alor, right, we call it a third-party cookie. The data inside, right, contains the credentials of whether to let you in or not, right? So traditionally, the turnstile, he didn't care whether or not it was the card from the condo or from Jalan Alor. He would let both in, provided the, the card was encoded properly. So this is the, the situation in the past. But now, right, imagine the condo saying, uh, I don't want to accept cards from Jalan Alor anymore. Only cards that come from our condo with the right credentials will be allowed in. That's literally what's happening. Because the browsers are saying that I will no longer interpret and act on data described by third-party cookies. Right? Mm-hmm. I will only act on data that comes from first-party cookies. This is why the cookie is not going away. It's just that the browser will intentionally ignore third-party cookies. Why? Because last time, many companies abuse this. They introduce their own variable and they start putting all kinds of data in and they expect the browser to read it and honor the data. Right? And this created a lot of privacy, I would say, uh, privacy issues simply because in many situations, you were not aware that you were being tracked. Right? And when you give approval, you're actually only giving approval conditionally to the site that you're visiting, not someone else, right? Uh, so, so this is the caveat. So this is why cookies will continue to be here. And for all the big players, right, what they're advocating is exactly what you mentioned earlier. We must start to proactively capture consent. We must proactively obtain more data sets so that we can improve the quality of life for our customers. Because the caveat here is this. When you use the data for things that the customer doesn't know about, people get upset. When you use the data for situations that do not benefit the customer, they also get upset. That's why we need to do this with the right intent. The data must always be used to improve your quality of life. So think about this way. If you knew that my mother had diabetes, if you then intentionally shared with me pharmacies that stock goods that can provide relief for diabetes at a lower cost, I will find that favorable. But if I don't have diabetes and you pitch to me things related to diabetes, right? I will treat it as spam, right? So the first rule that we all understand is that when people try to sell you things you don't need, we all treat it as spam, right? But bitching about this does not solve the problem, right? If you want to be part of the solution, then actually the question to ask here is this. How do I avoid spam by only showing you things that are relevant to you? Right? So then, if that was the objective, then the use of the data becomes meaningful. See? Because we are here to solve problems together. Right? To generate a strategic competitive advantage, not only for the brands we serve, but ultimately the consumers that are going to be your customers. Right? Because if you don't give them a favorable response, in today's world, right, they have options. Right? If you don't do it, they will get it from someone else. Ideally, I, loyalty right, is this concept whereby I continuously choose to favor you because I simply get a superior experience 
as opposed to me going somewhere else, right? So if you yourself as a brand don't choose to take the advantage of this data to drive the experience, what are we doing? So many people like to introduce jargon again, but I give you simplest example. I'm sure you have your favorite mama or your favorite chat fun place, right? So like for my favorite mama, when I come in, he can observe already. This person has been eating with me for the last 10 years. Whenever I order roti chanai, right, I will purposely uh, tear it and then I will banjir it with dal, right? So most of the time nowadays when I walk in, right, he will just give me a nod, you know, the Indian nod, right? He will just shake his head. I will also shake my head and he will just purposely prepare the roti chanai. He will tear it and then he will banjir it. That's what we call personalization, right? You see, in that process, right, he didn't need to know my name, you know. He just need to recognize that, ah, the same chubby guy, the hairy guy, he liked banjir. He like Roti Chanai, you see? So in this context, right, this has nothing to do with privacy, right? In order to serve me, you didn't need to know my name, but you need to uniquely identify me so that you can match me with my preferences. This is the actual process that needs to be done, right? But if we move away from, say, Ane or, 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 or Uncle, ideally you want to call the fellow by name, right? So if I can call him, hey, Mr. Lim, again. The fact that you call me by name, right? The relationship has changed, right? If you can match me with my son who also likes to eat, but he prefers nasi lemak, that's better, right? So you see, the more I know about you, this is called a relationship. And when a brand takes the time to get to know the customer, right? Most of the time, instead of feeling angry, you should be feeling happy, right? This guy take the time to get to know me. Why? Because I'm a valued customer. This is the principle that we are going to do here. I'm not here to say, ah, this China man, ah, he likes to drive 7 Series. Then tomorrow, the BMW 7 Series gets stolen. This is wrong use of data, lah, right? right? Because you're using that to generate an unfavorable response. But if you're using this so that in the context of your service and product, you're trying to deliver a better, superior experience. I think that's exactly what all businesses should aspire to, right? So let's not get confused by the jargon, right? We are here to serve. We are here to drive strategic outcomes to ensure that the business flourishes. And any business worth its grain of salt, right, always focuses on the customer, right? What can I do for my customer? Because if you think about it, right, uh, and this was something that I read from my favorite professor, he describes it very well. Marketing is defined as meeting the needs of consumers profitably, right? So if you break it into the sentence, right, meeting the needs of consumers. This means I want to be as relevant as possible. Profitably, then you think about it, many things contribute to profit, right? One is revenue. The second one is cost, right? If I can sell things at a better profit margin, obviously the amount of money I keep will be higher. If it took me logistics, operations, servicing, and marketing and sales as a function to deliver the outcome, if I can drive efficiencies across all of these concerns, right, the amount of money that I get to keep as a business so that I can reinvest it back in driving a superior experience will be more, right? So this is why at the end of the day, right, we talk about AI and machine learning. We cannot run away from describing it as a profit center, right? Because a cost center means that uh, we spend, uh, if you don't spend, cannot, uh, it just won't work. That is better than nothing, uh, right? But a uh, proper data scientist, right, is supposed to put it back into something that any CEO can understand. For every dollar you put into this strategy, you got $7 back. For every dollar you put into the other strategy, you only got $3 back. After a while, right, what you want to do as a tactic is to rank all the strategies by cost and return on investment. And this makes it easy for someone to evaluate, right? Because mentally, he will just think about it. I only got $1 million. How much can I really spend? According to my shareholders, they want to achieve a growth of 25% this year. What are the strategies that I need to bet on in order to drive this outcome and put the odds in my favor? Right? So if you cannot answer it in a manner that makes it easy for the CEO to decide, right? Whose fault is it? Right? Do you blame the CEO? Or do we since you already know what needs to be done? Why are we not doing it? Right? This way. When we do data science, the first thing that we all learn is we cannot expect the outcome to change if we continue doing the same thing, right? And after a while, you realize that certain things always drive unfavorable outcome. And certain things always drive unfavorable outcome. 
right? So for things that are unfavorable, we need to avoid. But the main question here is this, a lot of people stop. I avoid means don't do. Lah. No, it's not don't do. Is avoid, but then replace with something else, right? Because between lose $100 and only lose $50, there's different grade of bet, right? <laughs> right? And between earning $50 and earning $200, there's also different grade of good, right? right? So we always want the numbers to guide our way so that as a philosophy, right? Our strategies are always sound based on the situation that we encounter today, right? Because like if you have ever gambled before during Chinese New Year, right? We can't change the cards that are dealt to us, right? But as a good player, we will make the best out of what we have, right? And we will do this based on the cards we have and also what we call our operating environment. If the players are aggressive, if the players are very cautious, it changes the way you throw your cards as well, right? So this, again, people apply this unconsciously. Like, this is why some people, they are very, really good at playing. Some people, not so good at playing. But at the end of the day, certain things we cannot run away from it. See? So in an ideal situation, we all should improve as better players. So and good players tend to apply different strategies to design success. Yeah, so talking about being a good data scientist. So in your company, I'm sure you uh, hire a few data scientists or machine learning engineers. So what do you look for when you recruit for machine learning engineer or data scientist? What are the, what are the traits that you look for to, to be hired in your company? Understand. So basically, um, I think the, the most important thing is uh, they need to be... They don't... Sorry. They cannot feel upset when people ask them to justify how they came to their conclusion. I think this is the most important thing, right? Yeah, because a lot of people, uh, they feel that when someone challenges them, right, they're trying to pick a fight, right? The moment you have this kind of attitude, you better don't do data science. Yeah, very direct right now, right? Because if we are shy to explain, and if we cannot basically uh, uh, justify the actions that we take and how this contributes to a superior outcome, right? Fact of the matter is, if between colleagues you cannot express yourself properly, likelihood is you are not able to explain this to the client either, right? And that creates a very, very uh, uh, challenging situation, right? Because um, our job is to always simplify it such that the customer can participate. Hmm. The moment you say things like, hey, I study more than you eat salt, you know? I do this for 15 years already. You don't trust me, then don't do it. If you talk like this, then better don't, don't be a data scientist. Yeah. So I think it's a, to, one of the important traits of a, of, to be a good data scientist is communication. They're able to communicate, explain the model well. I, I, it's no point showing complicated model where we cannot explain to the client why is it predicting this way. I think yes. that's, that's, that's very important as a data, data scientist or machine engineer. Okay, last question of the day. Any tips or advice to be a good entrepreneur or like you or to be a good AI or machine learning engineer or data scientist? So um, I think it's not rocket science, right? The, the most important thing in order to become a better uh, practitioner is that you need to be willing to learn from trial and error, right? So AI machine learning, it sounds very fancy, lah, but what it did was it made a few million errors. But behind the scenes, right? In that same one second, right? It also figured out another few million ways to do it right. Hmm. Right, so as a human, sometimes you don't need to make a million mistakes, right? Usually, from the second or third mistake, you already get it, already. and that's where you need to be able to apply how a human would have responded and basically instruct the machine to learn from the experience as well. Right? Because anything that a machine can do was originally done by a human first, that's the most basic element that you need to think about, right? And you always need to think about it this way. If you were to execute it, right, how would you have done it? This is a very, very important self-observation that you need to do. If let's say you want to excel in this area. Hopefully that makes sense. Yep. Okay. So I think we have a very good discussion that range from range to range of topics today. Quite interesting. So I think thanks for your time uh, for the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you. And then uh, we look forward for maybe the next is the next uh, chat again in the next uh, podcast. Sure. Thanks, thanks for thanks. having me, Dr. Boo. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, 
please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. If you have any comments or recommendations, I will be glad to receive your voice messages. Send me your voice messages via the link in the show notes. To catch all latest episodes, you can follow this show on our website www.aimldatatalks.com or our social media such as Instagram or Twitter with the handler at AIMLDataTalks. Thanks again. I will see you next time.